the next step in part nine, I want to talk to you about this. It's a daily relationship. And in parentheses, I put not religion. It is not about religion. And when I say religion, I'm not being disrespectful toward any denomination. Um, I'm saying whenever we're so legalistic and we've grown up on things we saw in church and maybe our parents passed down to us and we let quoting a scripture or singing a hymn or coming to church on Sunday, we let these religious acts take the place of spending every single day with Jesus. And we let these rules or regulations or things that we think are... Well, God, I hope you're happy because I read my Bible for five minutes today like I promised you I would. Listen, when you read the Bible, it does nothing for God. It is all for you. He already knows the Bible. He breathed it out. And we can let, you know, taking communion become a religious thing. We can let singing become a religious thing. It's not about religion. It is all about a relationship with Jesus. And it's not about a Sunday relationship. It's about an every single day relationship. When the Israelites were in the wilderness in Exodus 16, 4, God said, I'm going to rain bread from heaven each day. The people can gather enough for that day. God wanted them to come to him every single day, not once a week. Not, okay, I'm going to get everything I need on Sunday. I'm going to let the pastor hear from God every day of the week. And then he'll tell me what God says. And then Monday through Saturday, I'm going to do my own thing. No, God said, every single day, I want you to rely on me for provision. I'm your source. I'm what you need to live and have life. And some of these people, they saw the bread. They thought this. They thought, you know what? Tomorrow is going to be a busy day. I got to take the kids to soccer practice. I got to go to work. I got a paper I got to write. So much going on. So I'm going to get today what I need for tomorrow. And you know the story the ones that did that, their bread rotted, right? Worms took it over. They couldn't use it in the first place. Jesus said in Matthew 6 11, when he taught us how to talk to God, there's a sentence in there and he said, Give us this day our daily bread. In other words, when you pray, do it every day. Talk to God every single day. You need Him every day, not once a week. You need Him every single day. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. Okay, here's my question. How often do you eat? I bet you don't eat just once a week. What, would you, what does your spirit man look like when you only feed it one day a week? When you come to church and think, you know what, that was a, a good sermon. Well, let's be honest. That was a great sermon today and, and the music was great. And that's all I need for the rest of the week. So I'm okay. No, every single day. What would your marriage look like if you were only intimate and only hugged your spouse one day a week? If you only talked to them and said, I love you and how was your day? And you only listened to them one day a week. Your marriage would be horrible. It's a day-to-day-to-day relationship. Now, I'm going to read you this next scripture before I get into my three points. And it's such a scary scripture. I recommend that some of you close your eyes and cover your ears. That's how scary it is. It's intended, I believe, to scare the hell out of you. I think that's what the goal is, okay? In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said this. Not everyone who calls me Lord is going to heaven. Now, let's just start off with that. Here's what he's saying. There are people that are so deceived. They're so deceived they think with everything in them that they're saved, but they're not. Now, if you think that you're saved and you're going to heaven, then because of that thought, there's a chance that you could be in this category of people. Because you believe you're going to heaven when you die, there's a chance that you are from this category where people, there are people that call me Lord, but they're not going to heaven. On judgment day, not few, but many. Now, I don't know what percentage out of 100 people. I don't know if many would be more than 
I know it, I, if I said few, it's obviously less than 50%, but many. So out of the billions and billions and billions of people who think they're saved all over the world who have ever lived, many of them is probably at least 100 million. Will say to me on Judgment Day, ready? God, I did a bunch of religious stuff. Lord, I prophesied in your name. Do you know you can prophesy and not be a Christian? Prophesy is saying what God said. You can read the Bible out loud and not be saved. You can teach the Bible. You can preach the Bible and not be saved. I promise you it's possible. I promise. We prophesied in your name. We drove out demons. No, wait. How can we drive out demons if we're not saved? Because the Bible says demons tremble at the name of Jesus. There are biblical principles that are in place whether you believe or not. God created gravity. You don't have to believe in it for it to be applied to your life. God created the law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. You don't have to be saved for you to reap what you sow. You know you don't have to be saved to save the name of Jesus and cause demons to tremble. We did many mighty works in your name. God, we went to church every Sunday. We took communion. We sang the songs we gave in the offering. And Jesus is going to look at them in front of everybody and say this. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Of course you quoted scripture because it was the right thing to do. And of course you acted good because your parents raised you right. But I never knew you. I never had your heart. We never conversed. We never spent time together. Depart from me, you wicked people. Now when we think of religious things, I think a lot of us think of very strict denominational churches. Of course, Catholicism is full of religious stuff. But we think of, you know, Episcopal, Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, Presbyterian. And that's fine. There are a lot of religious things in those churches. But guess what? The kind of church Jesus is talking about is a church like this one. He didn't say he said the Apostles' Creed and the Gloria Patri and the doxology. He said, y'all did some wild stuff. Y'all were prophesying in that place. Y'all were casting out devils. This was a lively, charismatic church he's talking about. Listen, there's religious stuff. You know, charismatic church, sometimes people think, well, if we, if we sing the same song 45 and a half times, we'll conjure up God doing something. You ever been in a church like that? Or the pastor says, you know, I studied all week, but God told me the last minute to talk about something else. That's his way of saying, I didn't study at all, and I don't want to feel stupid, so I'm going to just say what I There's so much religious stuff out there. And Jesus is saying, I want to know you. I don't want to know you through your parents. I don't want to know you through your pastor. I don't want to know you through your wife. I want to know you. I want a relationship with you. I want to be a part of every single day of your life. I believe that many of you in this building have been dating Jesus and you're not married to him yet. You see him once a week and you try to look good for him. You try to do your religious duty, your holy stuff, you know, try to kind of follow what everybody else is doing. You've been going on dates. It's time for you to marry him. Now, here's my question before I get in my throat. Here's my question. If there are many who actively engage in the things of God, are not going to heaven and think they are, how many more just attend church every Sunday? How many more just attend and think they're saved? If many who are active in the things of God, many who are singing and giving and serving, if they don't have a relationship with Him, then how many more just attend don't have a relationship? So that's scary, right? That's scary. Okay, I'm going to make, you're going to leave here very, very refreshed. I promise. That's the bad news. I got good news. I'm going to teach you how to have a relationship.
Because for some reason, we're like, duh, I don't know how. You know how to have a relationship. If I asked you today, if you're married to somebody, you would know the answer whether you are or not. Because you live with them. You spend every moment with them. They're part of your life. So I'm going to teach you how to be married to Jesus, okay? Three points for your notes. Number one for your points is this. And before, before I give them to you, let me say this. Um, if you keep notes in the handouts that I give you, you'll notice that today's three points are basically the same. Of course, I'm going to teach it differently, but they're the same as the three points from the sermon on being part of a church, because what we do on Sunday morning corporately is what you should be doing every single day of the week, one on one with Jesus. We worship corporately. We pray corporately. We hear the word corporately. We talk to God and we affirm him corporately. We listen to his voice corporately. We should be doing all that. That's how you have a relationship. Every single day, you affirm the person, I love you. And they say, no, I love you. You're so pretty. No, you're so handsome. I want to be with you. No, I want to be with you. Oh, you're such a good this. You're such a good that. You, you interact with the person, right? That's how you have a relationship. So number one for your notes is this. It's a daily connection. It is a daily connection. And, and, and number one is my longest point. So don't be stressed out in 20 minutes when we finally get point number two. So I want to teach you something I've taught you before, but I'm going to put a spin on it. Okay. Um, when, when God created, the, remember the seven days of creation, six days he worked, seventh day he rested. On those, during that week, there were some things that God created and there were some things that God made. There's a big difference. You have to understand the theological definition of creating is to form something from nothing. Okay? The only being in the universe who can form something from nothing is God. He's the only one. You and I, we can make things. We can't create anything. When you make something, it's you're forming something from something else. So we can't create a, a vase or a boss, if you're from Market Common. We can't create a boss. <laughs> but we can make one out of water and putty and, you know, dirt. So we can, we can make a boss, but we can't create it. We don't form it from nothing. You can't create a painting. You can make a painting because you're taking everything, that canvas, the paint, it all came from something else. Only God can take something and make something from nothing. That's creating. Okay, you got me? It's very important you get this because in Genesis 1-1, God created, the Amplified says, forming from nothing, the heavens and the earth. From nothing came heavens and the earth. He created it. Everybody say created. created. It came from nothing. Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. And light came at 186,000 miles per second from nothing. He created it from nothing. So during that week, some things he created and some things he made. When he made something, he spoke to the thing he wanted it to come from, the thing he wanted it to be sustained by, and the thing he wanted it to go back to when it died. For instance, verse 11, God said, let the earth. He didn't say, let there be grass. Let there be vegetation. Let there be marijuana. He didn't say that. He said, let the earth bring forth these things. Amen. So he spoke to the earth in essence and said, earth, you do it. I want you to bring forth the grass, vegetation, plants. Here's why. Because I want all these plants to come from you, be sustained by you, and go back to you when they die. That's why, that's why he made some things. In verse 20, God said, let the waters produce living creatures. All the fish in the sea, I want you to come from the ocean, the water, because I want you to come from it, be sustained by it, and go back to it when you die. Are you with me? Yeah. Verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures, animals. I want you to come from the dirt, from the earth, because I want you
want you to be sustained by the earth and I want you to go back to the earth when you die. God spoke to what he wanted it to come from, what he wanted it to be sustained by, and what he wanted it to return to. Why is this so important? Here's why. Because when God wanted us, he spoke to himself. In verse 26, then God said, let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, make man in our image and likeness. When God wanted us, he spoke to himself because he wanted us to come from him, be sustained by him, and he wanted us to go back to him. That's the goal when we die. Now some of you are thinking, no, he made Adam from the dirt. No, he made his body from the dirt. His spirit, who we really are, came from God, is to be sustained by God, and the goal is to go back to God. But when he made the body, when he made the body, he wanted the body to come from the earth, so our body would be sustained by the animals, the vegetation, ice cream, and things that like that that came to, because Grass is eaten by cows. Cows produce milk. Milk makes ice cream. Ice cream is processed salad, is basically what it is. So that's, that's how our bodies are sustained, okay? Okay. Okay, <laughs> stay with me. Okay, here's, I said all that, I said all that to say this. What would happen if the, dirt, if the plant said to the dirt, I'm pulling out of this relationship. You know what? I appreciate what you've done for me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and see you one day a week. And so all the plants in the world tells the dirt, on Sundays I'm going to put my roots into you, and I'm going to get some rain, some minerals, some sun, but Monday through Saturday I'm going to go out and do my own thing. What would happen to every plant in the world if it pulled away from the very thing that it came from, was supposed to be sustained by, and was supposed to go back to? What would happen? It would die. What did God tell Adam to happen to you if you pull away from me? You'll die. And you think, well, Adam lived to be 900. That was his body. His spirit died instantly. Instantly. So, if death comes by disconnecting from the thing that we came from that we're sustained by and we're supposed to go back to if we if, if death comes when we disconnect what happens when we connect to the very thing we came from or supposed to be sustained by and return to what will happen life john 10 10 we love the second part i can't even have life in abundance more the full till it overflows that's great the first part says this i came that you would have life ephesians 2 1 he made you alive who were dead and sin listen Jesus did not come to make good people, to make bad people good. That's religion. Religion always tries to make bad people good. You're doing wrong, do right. That's all about religion. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. That's why he came. We were never supposed to live our life based on this is right, this is wrong. We were always supposed to live our life based on God, I need you every single day. I'm sustained by you every single day. Now, I want to take a little bit further just because I, I love this stuff, okay? So, when God created Adam, he made a replica of himself. He made a replica of himself, a mirror image, basically. G Genesis 1.27, God made man in his image, in his likeness. So, so, Adam's a replica of God, and there's no sin in the world yet. No impure thought, no greed, no selfishness, no lust, nothing. Everything's perfect. 
There's a replica of God. So Adam, in this perfect state, Adam is walking like God walks. He's talking like God talks. He's thinking like God thinks. And he's desiring what God desires. He's desiring the same thing as God. Everything's perfect. He's in the image of God. Likeness. He's desires. And Adam has a desire for something. God's already in his life. God's a part, but he still desires something. And if you look real close, it's, it's kind of hard to find it, but it says in Genesis 2.20, Adam gave names to all the animals, but no suitable helper or companion was found. Evidently, he was looking. I, I imagine he says, God, I'm so grateful you've given the whole world to me. I have everything. I have you in my life, but God, I don't know how to explain it. There's something in the pit of my stomach that says something's missing. I desire something. There's a want in me, and I don't know how to explain it. I don't know where it came from. I don't know what to do about it. But there's something I'm looking for that I have not found. And so I imagine that God says, well, Adam, I want you to name all the animals. You know, Adam was brilliant. His entire brain was being used. There was no sin. He had never, it was, there was never a waste of lust or anything up here. Perfect. He was brilliant enough to name all the animals. And God says, name all the animals. And while you're naming the animals, I want you to see if there's one that you really like. And so Adam names the giraffe, and he's like, eh. Names the hippopotamus, eh. He sees the grizzly bear. He says, you know, she's big, but she'll be warm in the wintertime. You know, maybe that's the one. I don't know. I don't know. So he names all the animals, and the Bible says he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, there's a new animal in front of him. And he looks at her, and he says, Whoa, man! And that's where woman came from. Woman came back right there. So name woman. I like her. She looks like close enough. We're, we're very similar. We're very. She's more similar to me than anything else around here. I think I want her. Now, as a side theological note, I think it's so funny. In the English language, when God formed man and woman, the word formed is the same word in English, but it's different words in Hebrew. In Genesis 2-7, when God formed man, it's the Hebrew word for squeezed. In Genesis 2-22, when God formed woman, it's the Hebrew word for fashioned. That's so funny. When God made me, he picked up some dirt and went, and then he made woman, he just fashioned her, you know? <laughs> Which I'm glad he fashioned her, you know? I'm glad. You know, me, <laughs> I see John Paul. Um... So God makes someone in his image and likeness. There's a mirror of God. He thinks like God. He talks like God. He walks like God. And he desires what God desires. How did God know the only thing that would fulfill his heart was a companion? Here's how. Because God has the exact same desire. Jesus is called the second Adam, author of the New Testament. What do you get your son who has everything? He owns the whole universe. The whole world is his. What are you going to get somebody that has everything? You know what you get them? You get them somebody to share everything with. Amen. You get them somebody to walk with and talk with and spend every day with. That's what you get your son. You get him a bride, the bride of Christ. Listen, Jesus wants to marry you and spend every single waking moment with you. He wants to share his whole world with you. He wants to connect with you every single day. Point number two is this for your notes. There should be daily conviction. And I put in parentheses the word change. 
So conviction is when God speaks to you and God changes you. Religion says you can change yourself. That's a lie from the devil. You, it's so funny. We love trying to change other people. We can't even change us. <laughs> we try to change our spouse and fix our kids. You can't even do that to you. And you're in control of you most of the time. It, religion is all about a relationship. Romans 7, 4 says this. We've undergone death to religion, the Mosaic law, through the crucified body of Christ. Now you are free to marry him who was raised from the dead. And here's what will happen. You'll actually bear fruit. You want to learn how to love, have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, self-control, Galatians 5, and do the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of John Paul. It's not the fruit of me trying really, really hard. It's the fruit of me being married to Jesus and His Holy Spirit doing that work in my life. Uh, whenever you got married and you took, you did your marriage vows, right? I promise to be patient. I promise to take care of you when you're sick. That's all. That's that's religion. That's the law. Okay. And it's fine to start off that way, and that's how we learn. But after you say the marriage vows, imagine five years later, your wife is sick in bed. She says, honey, I need you to take care of me. And you say, baby, I'm going to go to watch the football game. I'm not taking care of you. And she says, oh, but remember, do not forget, five years ago, you made a vow. You said you would promise to take care of me in sickness and in health. And then, and then he says, you know what? You're, you're right. You're right. The right thing to do is to take care of you when you're sick. I don't want to. I want to go watch the football game. But because it's the right thing to do, that's why I will do it. Is that who you want to be married to? Or do you want to be married to somebody that says, I'll do whatever it takes. I love you so much. I want to serve you. How can I make your life better? I just want to spend time with you. Or do you want someone with you? Because it's the right thing to do. You want someone that wants to be with you, that wants to love you. That's what it's like. And when you do this, the change part is on God. It is not your responsibility to change. It is not your responsibility to try to be good. It is not your responsibility to use everything in you to do the right thing. It is not, it is not, it is not. Lies from the devil, mosaic law, religion. Your part is to spend time with the person who changes you. Your job is to spend time just in his presence and let him take you where he wants to take you. 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we continually, not on Sundays, as we continually behold the glory of God. Let me, let me just, let me, let me get this to a very easy place. The glory of God, as we continue to say, God, you are so amazing. God, I can't believe how good you've been in my life. I'm so grateful for everything that you've done. You are so glorious. You're so powerful. Every time I open up the Bible, I'm amazed that you love me. I just can't get enough of you. As we continually do that, then we are progressively being transformed into his image from one degree, not to your spouse's image who may be trying to change you, not to your parents' image who's trying to change you into this, not to your boss who wants you to be somebody else, but into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from all of the hard work you put in trying to change. For this comes from all the medicine. For this comes from all the effort and the blood, sweat, and tears and all those good self-help books you've been reading all your life. For this comes from the Spirit. This comes from Him. We don't change ourselves. We spend time with Him every day. He changes us. He changes us. I read a true story about a dog named Frank. Frank was a dog who loved legs. I mean, he loved legs. He lusted after legs. He, when he saw someone's leg, drool would start coming out of his mouth. 
He could not wait to bite any leg that came down his driveway. He would bite the milkman's leg and the UPS man's leg and the mail lady's leg. If he could get a hold of a leg, it would just make his day so good. Everyone was scared to come to Frank's house because they knew that Frank would come out there and lust after them and bite their leg. So his owner decided to help the dog out and he put a muzzle on his dog. Now Frank could no longer bite legs, but guess what? It actually increased his lust. Because whenever he was able to bite a few legs, at least he was getting it out of the system. Now he can't do nothing and he just hurts so bad. It made it so much worse in life. That's what religion is like for a person who needs a relationship with Jesus. Only a relationship with Jesus can permanently change a heart. Nothing else, nobody else, ever. Only a relationship with Jesus. Um... There's a musical that came out in the 30s called Fiddler on the Roof. It was one of the longest running, most highest grossed at the time uh, musical. The only one that finally surpassed it over a decade later was, was when Grease came out. That's when it finally started up. But Fiddler on the Roof is about this couple. Um, I was going to say they're an older couple, but they're probably my age. Probably in their 40s. And um, they, their marriage was arranged. Their parents got together, the, the, the parents of the, the husband and the parents, and oh, you know, our kids would be good for each other, our families would be good, so we're going to put our kids together. So the day they met was the day they got married. And they, they lived together. They had a good marriage, you know? Everything was okay, no problems. And they had five girls. The wife birthed five girls for her husband. The girls got older. And the girls, as they're older, they start finding boys, and they fall in love. And they go to their parents and said, Dad, we're going to get married. We all have boyfriends and we want to. And the parents said, no, 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 no. What's this talk of love? No, no. We have to, we have to tell you who you're going to marry. We have to find the right mate for you. You can't go do that. It has to be arranged. They said, but Dad, we're in love. They said, no, no. It's tradition. We've always done it this way. This is the way our parents did it. This is the way our grandparents did it. Our life came together because of this. We, 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 we have to find who you're, and we have to tell you who you're going to marry, and that's how it's going to be, because it's tradition. And all five girls, they run out of the scene, they run out of the room, you know, crying, leave the house. A little frame stick built house in the 30s, and, and the scene moves to the husband and wife. And the husband's at the dinner table, the wife's at the kitchen, and they're, you know, very close by. And the, hus the husband doesn't even look at her, and it's a musical. And all of a sudden he says to her, Do you love me? She says, love? What's this talk of love? Stop that. And he sings it again. Do you love me? She says, I've been with you for 30-something years. But do you love me? She starts singing all the things she's done for him. I cook and I clean and I take care of the kids. I birth five children. But do you love me? She says, listen, we've shared a bed together for 30-something years. I've been by your side all this time. But do you love me? All he wants her to say is, yes, I love you. And if I could have done it, I would have chosen you. Because he realizes this arranged marriage, this tradition. Were we ever in love? Do you love me? She says, oh, honey, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. And I take care of the kids. There's always a hot meal on the table. But do you love me? And I hear God singing to all of us today. Do you love me? Well, I go to church on Sundays. I give in the offering. I help serve. But do you love me? I pray. I quote scripture. I'm good to people. But do you love me? 
Do you do it because you want to be closer to me? Do you do it because you're so grateful for what I've done in your life? Or is it just something you do religiously because you've always done it? Is it something you saw growing up? Is it something you just copy in the person next to you? Or do you love me? Listen, I can teach you all about God, but I cannot have a personal relationship with God for you. That's all on you. Your spouse can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Please don't think your pastor can do it for you. Only you can be the one to choose that. Point number three is this. It's a daily commitment. It's a commitment every single day. Sometimes we have to, sometimes we have to act in love whether we feel it at first or not. But it's an everyday commitment. In Luke chapter 10, these two sisters, Mary and Martha, Jesus had transformed their life in such a great way, so they invited Jesus and some of his disciples over to their house for dinner. And, and Martha is so busy cooking the meal, she was a doer. I mean, the Son of God's coming to her house, so the table's prepared, the, 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 the china is, you know, all laid out. Everything is clean. Everything's sparkling. The, the food is, you know, cooked to perfection. His favorite dessert's in the oven. Napkins are set out. It's all going well. And she notices her sister Mary's not in here helping her. So she goes to the pantry and looks and Mary's not in there. She knocks on the bathroom door. Mary, are you in here? Nothing. She thinks this is so weird. I'm doing all this work for Jesus. And she goes into the living room. And Mary is sitting at his feet. Just watching him talk. And she's noticing how he caresses his beard when he tells a parable. She looks into his eyes and thinks, I can't believe he chose me. And she's hanging off of every single word. And Martha goes in there and says, this isn't right. In verse 40, it says, Martha was overly occupied, too busy worrying about all the work she had to do. So she said to Jesus, don't you care that my sister left me alone to serve? And then she commands Jesus, you tell her to come in here and help me do the work. Now that's some guts right there. I almost said something else there, but that was guts. She was doing good things. She was, she, was, she was taking the kids to school. They gotta go to school. She was at work, you gotta work. She was making sure the house was clean. Somebody's gotta do it. The, the, the grass doesn't cut itself. Things have to get accomplished in life, right? Of course. In verse 41, Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're so anxious and troubled about many things, but there's only out of, the, out of the millions of things you could do with every second of your day, there's only one thing that is essential. And Mary chose what is best. You know, when I was younger, I would read this story and I'd say, okay, God, I get it. Spend time with you. Yep, yep, yep. But somebody had to make the food. That's my personality. Somebody had to get it done. What are y'all going to do? Not eat? And I heard God speak to me one day, many years after that. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God said, John Paul, it'd be better to have no food on the table. And you spent time with me that day. Listen, for all we know, if Martha had been there at the feet of Jesus, he could have snapped his fingers and supernaturally had filet mignon, lobster, and crab legs there. Anything but vegetables. He'd have it all sitting there. 
We will always make time for what we really believe is essential. The people that God's put in your life that you really think are a part of your life, you'll always make time for those people. Your passions, you always make time for the things you really want to do. I'm begging you today, see a relationship with Jesus as something that is so essential you can't live without it. I want to close with a true story and then I'll, I'll let you go. It took place, it starts back in the 80s. This young executive at a church, he, he, he attended a service and the pastor preached on spending every day with God. And after service, the executive goes up to the pastor and says, listen, pastor, I don't know what kind of world you think we live in where people actually have time to meet with Jesus every day. That seems kind of impossible to me. And the pastor looked at him and said, I don't want to compare schedules with you because I'm the busy man too. But I believe whatever is important, we will always make time for it. That's what I believe. The executive thanked them and they left service. Well, a few months went by. The executive and his wife invites the pastor and his wife over to their house for dinner. They attend great dinner. Everything's good. After dinner, the executive says to the pastor, I want you to come with me in the Florida room, in the, the Carolina room for a minute. I want to show you something. He points to this rocking chair over in the corner of the room. He says, that Sunday afternoon when you preach that message and spending time with Jesus and how essential it is, he said, I want you to know, I went out and I bought a rocking chair for myself. And every day I do just like you say. When I wake up in the morning, I go sit in that rocking chair, I open up my Bible and read one scripture, just one scripture. I think about it, I drink my coffee, and I spend 10 minutes just listening to see if God's going to speak to me. He said, it's amazing. It's changed my life. The pastor said, I'm so proud of you. That's great. A few more months went by. The executive goes to the pastor. He says, listen, for the past several weeks, every morning in that chair, I keep hearing God tell me I'm supposed to quit my job and come work for you full time at the church. The pastor said, we don't have money to pay somebody. You know, we don't have money to pay is that, that, you know, I'm sorry, but that's not possible. The executive said, no, 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 I'm a millionaire. I don't need money. I have so much money in savings. I can come work for you for free. The pastor said, well, that's kind of weird. You need to spend some more days in that chair, you know. <laughs> Two weeks went by. The man shows up on Monday morning and says, I'm ready to work. I quit my job. After a few years, this executive is such a good leader, very charismatic, a very good influencer. He helps actually grow the church to the point where they can put him on staff, and he's paid on staff to do his job. A few more years goes by, and one day the executive goes to the pastor and says, listen, for the past few weeks, I'm sitting in my chair like I do every day. I hear God telling me I'm supposed to move to Colorado and help finance a friend of mine starting a church. The pastor said, that's another weird thing to hear. You need to go back and sit in that chair. A few weeks went by. The man comes back to the pastor, says, I know I'm supposed to do it. The pastor prays for him, blesses him, and sends him out. He uproots his family from where they're at, sells their house, moves to Colorado. He gets such a high-paying job that he gives this new church 90% of his income, and he holds on to 10% of it to live with their family. The church grows. Everything's successful. Everything's doing great. A few more years goes by. He's in his rocking chair every morning. He finishes up his Jesus time and he's sitting there doing some work, checking some emails, and an email came through he was hoping he would never, ever, ever see. It was from his doctor and it said that his entire body was filled with cancer. He had a few months to live. He did not get out of his chair that day. All day and all night, he just sat there and prayed and prayed and prayed. God decided not to physically heal him. He endured an incredibly long and painful disease, but he endured it from the strength that he gained 
every morning spending time with Jesus in that chair. It got to the point where the medical people had to come in and pick up his lifeless body out of that chair. The wife asked the original pastor to come and do the eulogy. He flew out to Colorado. He preached the funeral. After it was over, he went to the wife and he said, just out of curiosity, what are you planning on doing with that chair? She said, oh, pastor, we're going to keep it in the family. She said, I watched my husband be transformed by Jesus from 10 minutes in that chair every single day. He was a different man as the weeks went by. I saw God speak to him thousands of times in that chair. She said, we're going to pass it down to our children and our grandchildren so they can do just like he did and rely on God every single day. Listen, never underestimate the power of connecting, being changed by, and being committed to a 10-minute meeting every day with the creator of the universe. That's what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus. Amen. Amen.